0: I know Marilyn just prayed, but would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, I too ask you to come and guide us this morning through your word. Uh, Touch our hearts, touch our minds, touch our lives, we pray in your name. Amen. There's a fascinating part of language that we call idiom. Idiom. I didn't say idiot, but you can often feel like an idiot when you don't understand an idiom. Especially when you're working in a language that's not your native tongue. One ESL student came to America to learn English, about a 17-year-old girl, and she told the story at the dinner table at her host home one night. She said, I'm so frustrated with your language, I keep having trouble, I messed up today at the grocery store. I kept saying everything wrong and everyone started laughing and I was just so embraced. We have some strange English phrases. Watch your head. Have you ever tried to do that? Kind of hard, isn't it, to see your head, watch it. Garage sale or yard sale, how much and do they deliver? Uh, Slow children playing, you kind of wonder about those children, but they grow up to be slow men working, right? I had a teacher in high school, he was one of these that would say something off the wall and then just let it sink in until somebody finally got it. One day he said, you know, I've seen somebody turn into a driveway. <laughs> Did they turn back into a person? You know, we beat around the bush, hang in there, hit the sack, cuss the mustard, jump in the bandwagon, on the ball, that's the last straw. He's under the weather. Wrap your head around that. We even have a few in our church that we use. Would you turn over in your hymnal? <laughs> or... We kind of have a, a a group activity. All of you turn with me in your Bible. And we all love the one where the person's about to have the main morning prayer at church. Shall we all kneel as far as possible? <laughs> and Just how far is that? And the problem with idiom is... We may know exactly what we mean, and some people may know exactly what we mean, but there may be some people who don't have a clue what we mean. And we have some of that in our understanding of salvation. Morris Vendon is probably the person in my life who had more to do with crafting my theology and spiritual experience than anyone else. He's my father's first cousin. Morris was raised in an Adventist home, a pastor's home. He went to Adventist schools from first grade through seminary. He became a preacher. His father was a preacher. His uncle was a preacher. His brother was a preacher. His cousin was a preacher. And when he was in his late 20s and early 30s, pastoring up in Oregon, after the sermon on Sabbath, there was a dear little saintly white-haired lady who would shake his hand at the door and say, Pastor Vendon, that was a great sermon. It will be even better when you know Jesus for yourself. And he said she didn't have a mean bone in her body. She had a good heart. Morris said the problem was I didn't realize it showed. Even though he'd gone all the way through our schools, had the heritage of an Adventist family, he recognized he didn't really know Jesus personally. Is it possible to have a lot of information about Jesus but not actually know him? Is it possible to attend church every Sabbath and not actually know Jesus for yourself? Is it possible to know the 28 Fundamentals and actually be able to give Bible studies on them but not actually know Jesus for yourself? Is it possible to be a Pathfinder and win the Bible Bowl? My uh, Pathfinder crew at Glendale got a first place in Rockford, Illinois, At the North American Bible Experience, we were very proud of them. Is it possible for them to win the Bible Bowl and not know Jesus for themselves? Is it possible to be a third or fourth or fifth generation Adventist, even preacher, and not know Jesus for yourself? Morris said that he was so distraught over this, at about age 30 he ended up with bleeding ulcers. Just a cognitive dissonance in a a man with a very sensitive heart trying to appear something he was not and to talk about someone he didn't really know. So, at Camp Pitch, I, my 40 years in pastoring has uh, spared me this wonder, and that was back before my time when the pastors got to Camp Meeting two weeks ahead of time and spent two weeks pitching old army tents that were dirty and dusty, so Morris went to Gladstone in Oregon there to a camp meeting, and he had a couple weeks to talk to fellow pastors. Now he had to be careful about this because he didn't want to actually have the question sound like he didn't know. So he would ask the pastor he was working with erecting a tent, if someone were to ask you, how do you become and remain a Christian, what do you tell them? And the pastor would say something like this, well, give your heart to God. Well, how do you do that? You know, how do you give your heart to God? So a little while later, he'd be working with a different pastor, and he asked him, uh, if someone were to ask you how to give your heart to God, what would your answer be? Well, surrender your will to Jesus. Next day, different pastor, if someone were to ask you how to surrender your will to Jesus, what would you say? And he got all these answers. Lay your all on the altar, fall on the rock and be broken. Behold the Lamb of God, use the eye of faith. We've heard all these phrases. And he said when he went home, he was more confused than when he started. He said the latter state of that man was worse than the first. He came home discouraged. He actually wrote a resignation letter. He figured he wasn't fit to be a pastor, an Adventist or a Christian. He was empty on the inside while trying to tell people how to know Jesus. But before he sent the letter in, he got an impression. And we believe it was from the Holy Spirit. And that was to try reading a little book called steps to christ after all it seems to claim to show you the steps to knowing jesus so he read it and he decided he was going to underline everything it told you to do on how to become and remain a christian and when he got done he discovered what he'd underlined was things like give your heart to god surrender your will lay your all on the altar fall on the rock and so on and he was about to chuck the book into the fireplace which was lit at the time And he got another impression, which we all believe was from the Holy Spirit. Read it again. And this time underline in red the things that it says to do to become and remain a Christian that you can actually do. The tangible things. And when he got done, he realized they were all of his red underlinings fell into three categories. And we're going to talk about all three of those categories at a later time. What? Do you do to actually become and remain a Christian? Bible teachers teaching in our Adventist academies have asked that of students. I know Lee uh, taught for nine years at Auburn Academy and he asked it to every one of his Bible classes. What is a Christian? 98% of the answers came in with something like do what is right, go to church. A Christian is one who doesn't get into trouble, helps those in need, doesn't cheat, is faithful to their spouse, doesn't abuse substances, dresses modestly and conservatively, doesn't do this, does do that. 98% of the answers he got focused on behavior and performance. A Christian is someone who acts a certain way. Now you go out on the street and ask the common person on the street what a Christian is and they will tell you approximately the same thing. It's all about trying hard to be good and nice and staying out of trouble. The problem is, I've run into some really nice atheists. When I lived in Marin County, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, about 25 years ago, my neighbor was the nicest guy on the block. He'd help you with anything. He even brought his video equipment down to the church to do a video of me trying to tell people how to get to know Jesus. And he said, you know, I've heard that all my life. It never made any sense to me at all, still doesn't. Nicest guy. He was either agnostic or atheist. And then we come down to the church sometimes and we meet some long term members who are some of the most stingy, backstabbing, fault finding, unfriendly, and helpful, touchy, angry, mean people we've ever met. We better have a better way to define Christianity than just by how we act because there are nice atheists and some pretty obnoxious church members. In 2015, there was a North American division-wide pastoral meeting in Austin, Texas, and the keynote speaker was Wintley Phipps. I know he's a good singer. I'd never heard him preach. He's a good preacher. And he said something as I was sitting there. I just kind of walked in, sat down, tuned in, and he said something that was one of those things, i got to find that because that was good. And I went back a few months later, And I found the recording, and I transcribed this portion. He said, I realized that after all the years of preaching and teaching, and at that point for him it was just about 40 years, after all the years of preaching and teaching, it seemed to me in ministry we were not making enough nice people. I was still burying too many mean people, too many angry people, too many dysfunctional people, and making excuses for them at their funerals. Nice atheists and long-term Christians that are downright obnoxious. We better have a better definition of Christianity than behavior. And by the way, where did our kids get that definition of Christianity that was 98% behavioral? They got it at home, at school, and at the church. But I don't think they got it from the Bible. Let's look at some Bible verses. Now I have translated these direct from the Greek, word for word, they don't make great English prose, but I want you to see some parallels as we put these verses on the screen. Romans 3.20, therefore out of works of law, the word out of is the word "ek," from which we get exit, okay? Out of works of law, no flesh will be justified before him, for through law is perception of sin. Now, that tells us something very clear. Nobody is made right before God out of behavior. Isn't that right? Your behavior will never make you right in the sight of God. In fact, that's not totally literally translated because absolutely literally, it says out of works of law, all flesh will not be justified, (laughs) which twists it around again just a little bit to make you think. That's everybody will not make it based on behavior. Now, this verse tells us how you're not going to make it. Maybe there's a verse that tells us how we will make it. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified out of works of law. That repeats almost word for word Romans 3.20. Literally, all men will not be justified again is the way it is out of works of law. Okay, we know how we're not going to make it but through trust of Jesus Christ. Now your Bible will translate that trust in Jesus Christ, but it's exactly the same construction in trust of Jesus and works of law. So Paul is drawing an absolute parallel there. It's not out of works of law, but it's out of trust of Jesus Christ. Now works of law is a behavior term. Trust is not a behavior term. Trust is a relationship term. And we trusted in Christ Jesus that we might be justified out of trust of Christ and not out of works of law. For out of works of law, no flesh, or literally all flesh, will not be justified. So now we know how we're not going to make it, and we know how we are going to make it. Trust is a relational word. Let's look at another verse, Galatians 3.11. But that in law... No one is justified, that's a slightly different way of saying out of works of law no one is justified before God, is evident, for the just out of trust shall live. What's going to bring us life? Behavior or relationship? Works or trust? Now I find it interesting, he says this is evident. What does evident mean? It's obvious. Really? Really? What makes it obvious? Ah, Paul's a good preacher. He says, because the Bible tells me so. Remember, the only Bible that Paul had was the Old Testament. You know, this idea that we're New Testament Christians is a complete fallacy because the church was built on the Old Testament. All the New Testament tells us is how the church was built on the Old Testament. And Paul says the fact that we're saved not by our behavior, but by trusting Jesus, by relationship is obvious because the Old Testament tells us. It's right there in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, which says, "...the just out of trust of me shall live," and he just drops out the of me, and he quotes the Scripture. He makes his point from the Word of God. It is written. By the way, don't let anybody ever tell you that the Old Testament is works and law and the New Testament is grace. There's only one way anybody's ever been saved from beginning to end, and that is the trust of Jesus Christ. Trusting Messiah to come or trusting the Messiah who came. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you are, having been saved through trust. By the way, your Bible says faith, right? In the Greek, in the original, there's only one word. Anytime you read the word belief, faith, or trust, there's only one Greek word behind all of those. So you can pick your synonym. You can use belief, faith, or trust. Anytime you find one, you can use the other to help you think about it. So I changed the word there to make you think. By grace you are, having been saved through trust. And that not out of you, not out of what you do seems to be or or out of who you are, it is of God the gift not out of works behavior in order that not any might boast. Is Paul pretty clear here. Now it's interesting. The word that in the second line there and I put in all caps so you can see it. It refers to the whole enchilada, okay? It refers to the whole verse. It's not pointing back to trust, it's not pointing back to grace. But it's the whole thing, being saved by grace through trust. That whole thing is not something you produced, didn't come out of your mind or your doing. It's of God a gift. It's not of your behavior, so you can't boast about it at all. Titus 3, 5. Not out of works, the ones in righteousness, which we did, but according to mercy of him, he saved us. So it's not out of behavior, it's out of mercy of him. Now, one more thing here. It's not out of works. Even your good ones, the ones in righteousness, not even the good things we do are enough to gain us any status with God in terms of eternal life. And I capitalize the word we there because normally the pronoun in the Greek is built into the verb conjugation. So when the writer adds the pronoun it adds emphasis so he makes it very clear it's not out of behavior even our righteous ones that we did so it must be out of the behavior of what somebody else did that leads to the mercy of him by which we are saved i think the bible is pretty clear so let me give you a quiz now true or false if i get to heaven one day it will not be for being good true or false true okay now the next question if i am lost one day it will not be for being bad and that answer is also true let me explain a bit being a christian is not about what it's about who it's not about what you do right behavior it's not about what you know right theology it's about who you know right person And by the way, if you get the right person, you'll get the right behavior and the right theology. If you truly get to know Jesus, you'll end up with both what's. We can attempt right behavior without knowing Jesus. We can memorize right theology without knowing Jesus. But if we get to know Jesus, we'll end up with both right theology and right behavior. So when we see so many obnoxious Christians, all those mean people, and make excuses for them at their funeral, what is the problem? There has been no transformation of life. I don't think the problem is that we haven't talked enough about right behavior. I'm afraid the problem is we've talked too much about right behavior and not enough about knowing Jesus. Jesus is the authority on becoming and remaining a Christian. Here's a key phrase that I want us to get down. Christianity is not about what you do, it's about who you know. Now that is a truth, but it's not a complete truth. Christianity is not about what you do, it's about who you know is a truth. But to complete the truth, we have to add this phrase, and who you know will transform what you do. Okay, do you see how you've got to have the balancing factor in there? Christianity is not about what you do or what you know. It's about who you know. And who you know will transform both what you do and what you know. Are you with me? Now we're going to use that phrase over and over again. And Jesus is the is the authority on this. He said, "This is eternal life." Here it is. "That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent." Notice Jesus says, "I'm going to give you the definition of what eternal life is. It's knowing my dad and me. I find it interesting. It doesn't say anything about confession, repentance, sin, overcoming, getting baptized, joining the right church, keeping the right day. It simply says, eternal life equals knowing the Father and me. And the good news is they are one, so you don't have to get to know two different people. Salvation, getting to heaven, is based on knowing God and Jesus. Eternal life is more than getting to heaven. It's living the life of God eternally. It's living forever the life of God, real living, the best living, God's ways, our life, real life, best life, only life. I believe any other way is a few thrills on the way to death. And the only way to find eternal life is to know Him. Both quantity and quality come from one thing, knowing Jesus. Not from trying to do that life, but from knowing the one who is that life. It's kind of a divine nepotism. You have to know the right people. You have to have friends in high places. God is partial for his kids, and we're all his kids. God is partial to his friends, and we're all his friends. In fact, we're all his favorites. I remember an old joke from way back in grade school. The lady is pulled over by the cop, by the policeman for speeding. And the officer looks at her license and he says, Ma'am, according to your license, you're supposed to be wearing glasses when you drive. She said, I have contacts. He said, I don't care who you know, you're supposed to be wearing glasses. (laughs) Now, it's a stupid joke, I understand. But it makes the point, if you're going to get to heaven, you have to have contacts. My cousin Lee was trying to explain this point to some teenage boys a number of years back, and one of them said, I know exactly what you mean. We got to go to a Seattle Seahawks game the other day, and we got to sit on the bench with the players. You can't buy a ticket for that no matter how much you pay. But they said, my dad knows one of the trainers, and he said, I can get you on the bench. You have to have contacts. Contacts. Try getting a job nowadays. I'm a, I'd am make a terrible job coach. I have never looked for a job in my life, I have to admit. Um, and I hope I never have to. But I understand nowadays you can't just walk in and present yourself and your resume. You have to do it online. That's got to be frustrating because you know if you can actually present yourself in person, you might have a better shot. And we all know that in spite of the fact that It's supposed to be just fairness and resume and qualifications. If you know someone on the inside, you've got a much better shot at making it. And even if your resume is just one of a hundred, if somebody knows you, you've got a better shot of getting yours to the top of the list. There's somehow an advantage in knowing the right people. And your chances of getting into heaven are totally based on one thing. You have to know the right people. And that's not Gabriel or Moses or Elijah. You have to know Jesus and the Father. In fact, he says, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, wait a minute. Does that contradict everything I've just been saying? It's not the one who says, Lord, Lord, but the one who's doing the right thing. Ah, but we need to ask a question. What does the Father want me to do? Is that a fair question? And I think Jesus explains it the best over in John 6. The people asked him the question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They asked Jesus, what does God want us to work on? Now remember, they were part of a religion where the Pharisees said it was all about working on the right stuff. If they'd all just keep a perfect Sabbath, Messiah would come. If they'd just get their act together, they'd finally get their power back as a people and a nation and their freedom. It was all about doing the right stuff. And so they have a long list. And when you have a list of things to do, you never feel like you've done quite enough. So you're always looking for a new teacher to give you the final thing on the list that'll make it happen. And it never happens. Jesus is a new rabbi. He seems to have new teaching. Maybe he can finish the list. So they say, what does God really want us to work on? Jesus' answer, this is the work of God. This is what God wants you to work on, that you trust, believe in him whom he has sent. What does Jesus tell us God wants us to work on, behavior or trust? He wants us to work on trusting him. That is the work of God. So now I'm going to take that back to Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom, but the one who's doing what the Father wants them to do. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we've done wonders in your name. And what does he say? I don't think we ever got acquainted. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, or you who practice lawlessness. Now, wait a minute. We're going to talk about it this afternoon. First John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. Isn't that amazing? Casting out demons, prophesying, and doing wonders in Jesus' name if we don't know him is practicing, literally the word in the Greek is anomos. A is un, and nomos is law. Unlaw. Doing those things outside of knowing Jesus, is a life of lawlessness. Don't miss that. Jesus says something similar in John 13, or Luke 13. Many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, he will answer and say to you, I do not know you or where you come from. And you'll begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence. We taught in your streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Same song, different verse. He doesn't call it lawlessness here. He calls it iniquity. And iniquity is literally the word righteous with the little prefix ah, unrighteous. So if we're doing right things... And hanging out in the right places, but we don't know Jesus, he defines us as lawless and righteous. Lawless and unrighteous. Hmm. Think about it this way: you just got back from a mission trip, you spent a lot of money and time and energy going to a far country to do some work for some people less fortunate than you. And you arrive home from the mission trip in the parking lot and you see Jesus standing by the front door. And you run up to him and you say, Jesus, we were just now working for you in Guatemala. And he says, who are you? I don't think we've met. It all comes down to relationship. Think about those Ten bridesmaids. The ten bridesmaids. How many were ready? Five. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. What's the coming of the bridegroom? Second coming. So all of these bridesmaids were Adventists. Because anybody who's looking for the Advent is an Adventist, right? You can have all kinds of forms of Adventists. You can have Baptist Adventists and Lutheran Adventists and Catholic Adventists and Seventh-day Adventists. These were all Adventists. They were looking for the bridegroom. But the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in to him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Somehow that oil and lack of it has to do with whether or not we know Jesus. little cartoon, Mr. Do You Know God? Are you kidding? My parents are Christians. You know, I'm a second, third generation. But do you know God? I attend a Christian school and always go to church. But do you know God? I give tithe and offering and sing in the choir. But can you tell me how to know God? And he is flummoxed. And the little lady says to Pastor Venden at the door, it was a great sermon, Pastor, but it will be even better when you know Jesus for yourself. It's possible to know all about him without knowing him. And the key word is know. We have to know the right people. Christianity is not about what you do, it's about who you know. And who you know will transform what you do. The word know is the word gnosko, G-N-O as it were becomes K-N-O in the English, came across. Gno becomes K-N-O. And that word doesn't mean a conceptual knowledge, it means an experiential knowledge. There's another word for know in the Greek, which comes down to us in the form of idea. An idea is a conceptual thing, but to know is experiential. And it gets used in places like... Joseph did not know Mary until the child was born. Mary protests, how can this be? How can I be pregnant? I do not know a man. Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Do I need to explain that? It's not conceptual. It's experiential. And So when Jesus says eternal life is to know the Father and me, he's talking about something personal, meaningful, close, Intimate and deep, not just a head knowledge, not just a theology and a doctrine, but an intimate personal relationship, the kind that produces offspring. Go to the woman at the well. You remember her. Jesus has this little conversation, talks to her about living water. She finally decides that'd be a nice product to have. I'd like some of that. Jesus says, good, call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five, and you're test-driving the current one. And she says, you must be a prophet. Let's change the subject from experience to theology. She says, which mountain is the true mountain? Which day is the true day? We have our own version of it, right? And Jesus says, well, it's not about the mountain. Now, he does say salvation is of the Jews. It's very interesting that the Jesus who says to this woman, salvation is of the Jews, later on told the Pharisees that when they make a convert, they make him twice the son of hell as themselves. <clears throat> How in the world can salvation be of the Jews when they make him twice the son of hell? And the reality is there's only one place you're going to find salvation. It's in what this word teaches. Amen? There's no other source. And where was that source? Down in Jerusalem. It was under a huge pile of trash that they had piled on top of it. You had to dig through a pile of trash, human teachings and legalism and behaviorism, to find the truth, but it was the only pile you could dig in and find the truth at the bottom. So Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews, but then he turns around and he says, true worshipers, not about the mountain, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. <clears throat> Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You can't just know the right truth. You've got to have the heart of the thing, Jesus seems to be saying. It's possible to know truth without the spirit, without knowing Jesus. We can give Bible studies on key doctrines and proof texts and arguments and not know Jesus. That's why Morris Venden had ulcers. He knew all the data, but he didn't know the person. He had the truth, but he didn't have the heart. Correct theology without heart experience doesn't save anyone. Correct theology without heart experience is just, well, I like to say it's being dead right. Correct behavior without heart experience doesn't save anyone either. You can be lost for eternity with all the right theology and all the right behavior if you don't know the right person. Jesus quotes Isaiah, These people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is in the next county somewhere in vain therefore they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men Jesus said John 5:39 you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life you think you actually get saved by knowing this Jesus says no this testifies of me and you have to come to me to have eternal life notice it's not about truth and doctrine it's about knowing and having Jesus Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's little truth information, doctrine, and theology. There's big T truth, which is the person of Jesus. By the way, you can get little T truth without getting big T Jesus. But if you get big T Jesus person relationship, you'll end up with the right truth. If we think about the religious technocrats of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders... The great deception of their day was that they were saved by their theological system. Their ascent to truth constituted righteousness. Their theoretical knowledge of truth proved insufficient for salvation. The rich young ruler says, what do I lack? You got too much stuff, give it up and come and follow me. It's about getting with Jesus. And you look at those who were the most zealous for the right truth, and they're the ones who had the most animated hatred against the one who is truth. Remember, it was Sabbath keepers who killed Jesus. Many of us today take for granted that we're Christians because we subscribe to the right theological tenets. I mean, I haven't heard it in a while as much as I used to, but do any of you remember When you or someone else became an Adventist, you asked, or that you were asked, when did you come into the truth? Heard that phrase? Oh yeah, when did you come into the truth? No, when did you come into Jesus? He is the truth. It's an intimate, personal, deep, meaningful, ongoing, daily, special, not casual relationship. If you want to get to know someone, how do you do it? I remember Lee telling me the story of when he first saw Margie, who became his wife about 40 years ago. It was at Pacific Union College. He said, I saw Margie in something. He said it wasn't a click, it was a nuclear explosion. He said, I had to get to know her. He lived in the village with his dad, with his mom and dad, there at Pacific Union College, where Maury was the pastor. But he said, I ate in the cafeteria every meal for a week, it cost me a fortune. But I had to find her again. And finally he did. And he crossed the cafeteria and he got a conversation going. And there was a lot of deliberate getting to know that went on. It wasn't casual, it was deliberate, it was intense. When you fall in love, there's got to be some kind of a click. And then you look for every opportunity to get together. Deliberate effort for communication, talking, listening. Hours of conversation can go by. It seem only minutes. You go places and do things together. You're very intentional every chance you get. If you want to get to know someone, it's going to take deliberate time and intentional communication. And it's the same ingredients of getting to know God. Taking time. Time is time. There's no substitute for time. If you're too busy... You don't have time. Got to take some time, and that's got to involve some talking and listening and doing things together, getting to know him. As Christians, we are Christians, right? It's right in the word, Christian. Yet there are many Christians who don't even know Christ. And there's a lot of Christianity that has to do with doctrine and what day you go to church and trying to do the right thing that doesn't have much to do with knowing the Christ. Above all else, Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus, a friendship. When Jesus comes back, he's going to come for his friends. A friend is someone you spend time with as often as you can. A friend is someone you love to talk to and you love to listen when they talk to you. A friend is someone you love to do things with and do things for. A friend is someone that you have come to know and love because you spent so much time with them. And when you have a special relationship with someone, it makes all the difference in the world. I think it's an overused illustration, but the actor who recited the 23rd Psalm before the adoring audience, and he did it with all the right expression and inflection, and the people applauded. Bravo, well done. And then the old preacher got up and he recited the same. And the people wept, including the great actor. And when the actor had composed himself, he said, I know the 23rd Psalm, but he knows the Good Shepherd. In fact, I learned something not too long ago looking at the 23rd Psalm in the original Hebrew. It doesn't actually say the Lord is my shepherd. It says the Lord is the one shepherding me. Do you get the personalness of that? It's not, yeah, yeah, that guy over there playing the flute over on the rock on the side of the hill. That's my shepherd. That's him. No, it's the Lord is shepherding me. It's close, personal, and intimate. My very favorite verse in all of Scripture to preach on is John 5, 11 to 13. This is the testimony. Here are the first person facts that God has built into that would be already past tense, given us eternal life. And this life is where? It's not in a church, it's not in a doctrine, it's not in right behavior, it's in a person. Eternal life comes packaged in a person. This life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has the life, literally. The definite article is there in the Greek. It's talking about the eternal life, the real life. The one who has the Son has the life and the one who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's all about who you know. If you know the right person, you're in. If you don't know the right person, you're out. It's not about what you do it's about that was real quiet it's not about what you do it's about who you know and who you know will transform what you do let's pray Jesus thank you for having a heart wanting to be a friend Forgive us for being too busy and distant. And yet, Lord, it's amazing how hard we work to do things, and yet how little we seem to have time to just get acquainted with you. Help this to sink into our hearts, that Scripture makes it clear. It's about knowing you. Eternal life is knowing you. And knowing you is everything. May we focus on that and may out of that we discover that knowing you brings everything else with it. A transformation of belief and behavior will come out of knowing you. May we put our focus on knowing you so that you can do the transforming work within us. We pray in your name. Amen.